If you would turn to Exodus 19 with me tonight. Chapter 19, starting with verse 3. Let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. God, my Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity to come before you. God, and um, it's been a, a chaotic time for many, Father, I know. But God, that we can, we can trust in you, Father, and, and we, can, um, we can look to you for guidance and, and you for refuge, Father, and strength, Father. And uh, I'm just so thankful for your word because your word reminds me of who you are and uh, who we are, Father. And, uh, and God, I pray, Lord, that you would use this message to, uh, to speak to each soul tonight. God, we love you and thank you. It's all in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been talking about the covenants and, you know, just a recap on the covenants. You know, we first started with the covenant of creation. And so God, we know, is the, the creator of all things and, and God created man in his image. And in that, he, he, gave, he gave man and woman just one, one rule. And they broke it. And, uh, and by that, that, that breaking of this one rule is that, that we see sin and death and disease come into this world. Uh, and, and man is separated from God. And that... And that now that there is a problem for all mankind, this separation, this sin, sinful nature uh, that will keep us separated from God. And, and then we saw the Noahic covenant that, that after Adam and Eve were um, banished from the garden and separated from God, in his mercy, he allows them to continue. Uh, and in his mercy, he even clothes them in their shamefulness. But then as we see... You know, mankind spirals quickly out of control. And by Genesis 6, uh, it is chaos in the land. And, and there, aren't, there aren't worshipers of God. And this one man and his family finds favor in God's sight, not by his merit, but by God's grace alone. And we see Noah is, is told to build this ark, and, and God saves Noah and his family and creation through that ark. And, and then, and, but the rest of uh, humankind is destroyed in this. Uh, and, and then we see uh, a covenant at the end of that, of that scene where God gives this rainbow and he promises never to uh, destroy mankind by rain again, by flood again. And, and then we move forward again in the story. And again, mankind spirals out of control. And we see... You know, the Tower of Babel, and we see uh, mankind dispersed, but we see this one man, this pagan man, living in a pagan land that God finds favor, or he finds favor in God's eyes again. His name is Abram. And through this man, God makes a covenant with him. And we saw in Genesis 15 that, that God goes through in this ceremony that, that Abram is asleep. Abraham is asleep. While God goes through and, and God makes this covenant with Abraham that he will fulfill where he promises Abram to make him a great name and a great nation and, and that he would give him more descendants than the stars that Abram can count in the sky and that he would uh, use Abraham, you know, his family to bless all the nations of the world and that he would give him a, a, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. So we see that. That covenant. 
And that covenant that God made with Abraham was renewed with Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26.3. And then to Isaac's son Jacob, God appeared at Bethel according to Genesis 28.13-15 and confirmed the covenant to him there. But then, you know, can you imagine you know, the people of Israel, they, they're you know, the 12 sons of Jacob. You know, Jacob, you know, his name will be changed to Israel and this great nation Israel will be born through this man, this family. And 12 sons, Joseph would be sold into slavery in Egypt. And that family would be, it would be saved through Joseph. That God would use Joseph to, to save, you know, the, uh, the nation of Israel, the family of Israel at the time, which would become a great nation. He would use Joseph to save this family during a famine. And so they're, they're saved to Egypt and then they're enslaved in Egypt. So that, so that nation of Israel, which grows to hundreds of thousands, you know, imagine as the, as the stories were passed down that they were, you know, supposed to be this blessing to the world and this great nation, and here they are, just hundreds of thousands of slaves. But then God would send a redeemer. God would send Moses, a deliverer. And he does deliver those people out of bondage, the, the Israelites out of bondage. So here we're going to pick up. This is after he's delivered them. And in Exodus 19, starting with verse 3, they're in the wilderness and God goes to Moses and he says this, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Israel, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people of answer, all the people answered together and said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do." So we see here uh, this the first time that there is with one of these biblical covenants that there are two parties that take part in this. They're agreeing to take this covenant. And there are three divine promises in this part of God's promise that we'll look at. Here, the first one, that Israel will be God's special possession. That he, You can see that He is setting them apart. And I want you to notice something about that verse 5. That He says, my treasured possession. But then He says, for all the earth is mine. So he is making reference that yes, he owns it all. He possesses all of it, right? He is sovereign over all his creation. But he is making sure that we know that Israel is going to be set apart as a special possession. So there's something, there's a special designation for them. And then the second part, Israel will be a kingdom of priests to God. Now think about what like, think about that word priest and what the priest's role was. 
The greatest benefit for being a priest was the intimacy, that intimate relationship between the priest and God, that the priest could come into the presence of God. And then the third part is Israel will be a holy nation. We're going to look at that word holy um, a little bit later, but you think about that he is saying that they will be set apart and that they will be morally would look like him, his likeness, that they're going to be set apart and there's going to be a difference between them and other nations. And so, so this is a Mosaic covenant, or this is at least part of it. This is the beginning of it. And God doesn't first give the law. We're going to talk about the law here in a moment. But He doesn't first give the law. In fact, their redemption comes before what we call the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Their redemption, He brought them out of Israel. It was a result of His complete sovereign power and grace. It was not any merit that the Israelites had earned. It wasn't based on their goodness, but it was based on their on His grace and mercy that He brought them out of the land of Egypt. In fact, His main reason for bringing them out was to worship Him. He is bringing them out of bondage so that they can worship Him, so that they can point the rest of the world to Him. He's going to use this tiny nation of Israel. He's going to do mighty works through this tiny nation of Israel so that the rest of the world will know who God is. That's what He's going to do. And so, making this covenant, it's going to be the first time that the people swear an oath of loyalty to their covenant God. The people would be ruled not by an earthly king, not by a president, not by a dictator, not by themselves like a democracy, but they would be ruled by a theocracy. They would be ruled by God Himself would rule over this nation. So He is calling this people, Israel, His people. And that He is their covenant Lord, their God. Where, where He uses the, the name Jehovah or Yahweh. That He is their God. The one and only, the true God. But before, before they could enter into this covenant, God tells Moses that they must be consecrated. In Exodus 19.10-24, I'm not going to go through it, but, but read that later. Read that step by step what these Israelites had to do before they could, before they could get close to God and before they could hear His voice, before they could have an encounter with God. So before they're brought before God, He makes He has to make them holy through through this word that you may or may not have heard before, expiation. The word expiation means the remission of sins or a removal of wickedness. So He's going to take them through this ceremonial rituals and you see it throughout the Old Testament. These things that, for instance, the priest had to do and people had to do before they came into the temple and before they come into God's presence. To be made holy before God. To, to do these ceremonies to ritually cleanse them of uh, impurities. I think God is, is showing us something that's, that's very important. He's showing us how holy He is. That, that even, even touching things like 
touching dead animals or, or uh, you know, being in contact with disease, that that can make you richly impure and, and that there's a certain way to come before God. Now, that's going to be twisted the same way that, that we twist those things today, that at its heart, it is the heart. And we understand that today, or at least I hope that we do in this church, that, that what He is showing them is that to become, come before God is that you have to humble yourself before God. And He is showing them these rituals that by obedience, by faith, they're going to be obedient to God and do these things that He commands. It proves that they believe God. It also proves that they understand that He is holy. And you just can't come into His holiness, His holy presence without obeying what He says. Obeying what He, what he tells them to do as far as these rituals go. And so this expiation, this process of remission of sins or removal of wickedness to show them that they can't come before God as they are. And, and we're going to see this definitely symbolized in um, the Passover. We're going to see it in um, where, where, we, where we see uh, the goats. There's two goats that one would be um, taken before God and slaughtered. And that the other one that the priest would lay his hand on the goat and then would send it away. And that that goat, as it is sent on the Day of Atonement, excuse me, that that goat, as it is sent away, that it is taking the sins of Israel with it. And that is expiation. It is showing that God is removing that from Israel. Okay, and so, and so we can see that through the Old Testament. Now here, they were told not to come up to Mount Sinai, but just to the bottom. That there was a line that the people of Israel could not cross. And that God was going to speak to Moses and to the people of Israel. But that they weren't, that the people of Israel couldn't cross that line. Only Moses could. And they experienced, this is what they experienced as they came before the mountain. They experienced thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, loud trumpet blast, and the mountain quaked. And God answers Moses, it says, as in thunder. So we see this, the holiness of God. You know, I always think when I'm, when I'm thinking about the holiness of God, I think to Isaiah 6, where we see this scene where Isaiah is given this vision of the throne room of God and how God feels it. He's so huge, so big, so majestic. And you can look at Isaiah 6 to get a more clear view. But, but in that view, I think we see so much of what holiness is and and, and Isaiah knows that he's not supposed to be in there. And he's, and he's before God and he, and he says what he believes. What he knows is true. He says, God, I'm, I'm impure. I'm unclean. And, and he knew that he deserved to die in that state. That he didn't deserve to be in God's presence. And by being in God's presence, that it was dangerous. That's what holiness, holiness is that God is set apart. That he is different from the rest of his creation. It is much like the sun. The sun, we, we need it to survive. It's a source of energy that, that, uh, that the, the earth is perfectly far away from the sun that it doesn't burn us up, but it's close enough that it gives us life, right? But if we get too close to the sun, it would kill us. We would evaporate. 
we can't get too close to the sun. And, and that is one way to think about God's holiness is that, is that we, had to, you know, we had to be far enough away from God because He's, he's, he's dangerous. And I love how C.S. Lewis talks about it in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe where you know, he's talking about Aslan, but, but you know C.S. Lewis is really talking about God. He, when he says that, you know, that Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. And that's exactly what God is in His holiness. He, he isn't safe, but He's good. Uh, John Piper says it, says it this way, when His holiness goes on display... Is called His glory in the Bible. That we see Him in His glory when His holiness goes on display. And in that scene in Isaiah, Isaiah goes before God, and and, and all through you know the Old Testament, we see that if if anything that is impure touches anything that's pure, what is pure becomes impure. But here there is a scene of the seraphim that has the coal in that in that vision and Isaiah is before God and says I'm unclean I'm a man that's unclean and my lips are unclean and the seraphim takes that coal and it touches Isaiah's mouth with that coal and what happens this is what this is what he says your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for so God takes away, He expiates, He makes pure those sinful lips so that Isaiah can go and share the news that God has him share. And so, and so here, you know, you think about this. How did God describe Moses to Himself? How does God describe Himself, excuse me, to Moses? When, when Moses is at the burning bush before the Exodus, how, what does He say about Himself? When Moses is, is, you know, tells God, well, who do I say sent me to go take these slaves out of the land of Egypt? I'm, I'm supposed to go before a king and tell them that you have to release thousands of your slaves that built your cities? How's that supposed to work? I don't even have an army. Who, who sent me? And how does God say it? I am. It's the great I am. And that, and that term, think about what that... What that term means, it means that he is self-sufficient, that he needs nothing, that he is everything. And he is the great I am. That's how he describes himself, God's covenant name. He's the ultimate, that I am is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency and self-existence. And we see Jesus Christ use the I am statements all through the book of John. In John 6.35, He calls Himself, He says, I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John 10.7, He says, I am the gate for the sheep. In John 10.11, He says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11.25, He says, I am the resurrection. In John 14.6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. But the, probably the most controversial, one of the most bold statements, and they're all bold. He, it's hard to choose what's the most bold statement that Christ makes. But perhaps the, 
the most bold statement that he makes. And you can, you can see how bold it is by the reaction by the Jews. When he says, he tells the Jews, your, your father Abraham rejected that he would see my day. Excuse me, he rejoiced. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what he is saying is that he is self-sufficient. He is saying that he is the one that is self-existent. He is saying he's the Alpha and the Omega. He is saying he's God right here. And look, look at what they did next. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It wasn't his time yet. But here he makes that claim. And if we believe that, that Jesus is truthful, then we believe that he is God by this claim. And so and so here, you know, our, our, our selfish nature wants to be self-sufficient, though. We want to be like that. God is the only one, though. He is the great I am. And, and he is dependent on no one else. He's the only being that is dependent on no one else. Completely independent. But we, everyone else is dependent on Him. One of Frank Sinatra's signature songs was I Did It My Way. And listen to some lines in it. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. That's how we naturally are in it. We want to do it our way. We don't want to submit. We don't want to bow down. We naturally rebel. You did it in your home against your parents in whatever form. Some is very evident to see. Right? Some is very evident to see. You know, when we rebel. But it's the ones that seemingly... Don't rebel that you got to watch out for, right, Mike? And so, but here, the final stanza of the poem, Invictus, by William Ernest Henley, says this It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's how we are in it. You're going to see the Israelites. Always turn back to that that way of thinking, and and if we're honest, we're we're you know we're not any different. What are the Israelites going to do? It says over and over they're going to do what's right in their own eyes, because what do they really believe? They believe they're captain of their soul, and it, and it usually let's be honest, it usually takes something like this, like what we're going through right now, to see how fragile we are, to to understand that we're a natural disaster. Uh, uh, an epidemic away from being third world ourselves, from from being you know from knocking on death's door, and we ought to know that. We ought to know that it could be any day for any one of us. We ought to know that, but we got to be what constantly reminded. We got to be constantly reminded because we think that we're in control, and we we're absolutely not. And so this Decalogue, this Ten Commandments is given. And it is significant because it is here that Israel received the Mosaic Law, 
but that it has to be a schoolmaster pointing to the way towards the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. So we can talk about, we can go through the Ten Commandments, we can talk about what, what each one means, and, and we could um, discuss about what all that it meant for Israel and what it means for us today, that, that it is, that it is um, a way of, for instance, to show us how holy God is, no doubt about it. That it shows us what true goodness and true holiness is. It is a very spiritual law. It is not, it's not just like the Bill of Rights. Don't ever compare it to the Bill of Rights. Is that, that our laws um, you know, in America, they, they, they might have been influenced by the Ten Commandments and, and by Christianity. But they're nowhere near the level, the standard that the Ten Commandments and the law is nowhere near it, and and so and so here we can't we can't make that comparison. Is that it's so much higher above any man's law that man makes? God's law is, and and so we can talk about that, and and we can talk about it as a way towards sanctification. It shows us how to live, how to be holy. And this covenant between two parties. It does not mean that there are equal partners in this covenant. There are. It is more than one party, isn't it? And, you know, I was studying suzerain treaties. And these were treaties that were popular among that day. They were popular among the Hittites specifically. And what would happen is the suzerains, they were the kings. And they generally had like lords or vassals below them. Okay, so royalty, but not kings. Those that would serve the suzerain, the king, and they would make these agreements, these covenants with one another, these legal documents. And so they would they would agree to serve the king and to be loyal to the king. And in return, the king would offer, for instance, grain or the king would offer protection from his his army towards them from from maybe other enemies of the land. And so. And so here, you know, what was usually included in these treaties is they would declare who they were and what they had done for those vassals, what they had done for those that that were under them, basically reminding them why they should be loyal. And they would also put in the requirements of the treaty. This is what this is what you need to do in order to keep this covenant, this this document, this treaty. And the documents would be signed by both parties. And they would, they would usually generally read the documents aloud. And from time to time, they would read them again. Especially if one had broken the covenant, the treaty. And we're going to see this format in the biblical covenants. And we see it here in the Ten Commandments. And where God spoke all these words, it says in chapter 20, saying... In verse 2, I am the Lord your God. So he says, who he is, I'm the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So he is first declaring who he is. And he's a, not, any, not just some distant God, but he's the Lord your God. He's a covenant God. He is Jehovah. And he reminds them of what he's done for them. That He has brought them out of the land of Egypt. Because 
if he doesn't remind them, and he has to remind them over and over again, what are they likely to do? They're likely to forget, aren't they? And we so often forget what he's done for us, and we go right back. We go right back to that vomit. We go right back to that old lifestyle that we know is harmful. And we know it's not any good for us, but we do it, don't we? So many times. So here, he goes on and he lists these commandments. And he is speaking this out to the people. So they have done all these cleansings and they've gone through this ritual and now they're at, they're at the foot and they hear God's voice. He gives the Ten Commandments. And so these Ten Commandments, like I said, the, the most important thing that we can see out of these is that they would point us, they're like a mirror to our souls, aren't they? Every time that we think that we're good, Austin, we can look at the Ten Commandments and we can, it doesn't, it doesn't take long to get down the list, does it? And to find one that we've broken probably today. Alright? And so we, we look at this list and it is a mirror to our souls and it does the most important thing for us because you know without, without understanding the bad news, then we'll never understand the good news. And listen to what Galatians 3 says in verse 24 that Paul writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. There it is. It's by faith. That here He is showing us He's pointing. We would not understand that we need grace and mercy without, without this guardian, without the law that shows us that we fall short. And it points to a Redeemer. And so here, uh, after the Ten Commandments are spoken to the people by God, the people are so terrified at the voice of God that you see in, in chapter um, 20 verses 18 and 19 that they pleaded with Moses you speak to us and we will hear but let not God speak to us lest we die God tells the rest of the ordinances to Moses and you see that in, in chapters 21 through 23 but then it picks up again so he lists these ordinances you know it goes through all these different things that they that they must do and then in Exodus 24 Moses reports all the ordinances that God just went through to the people. And again, they accept the term of the covenant. So, so they accept it. This is what it says. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, that's a dangerous statement. Say so that we will do these commandments. Then Moses, it says he, he writes them in a book next. And then he builds an altar. And he, and he sacrifices several oxen. And he seals the covenant with blood. And he throws some of the blood on the altar. He reads the book to the people. And then we see him as a strange scene. He starts throwing the blood on the people. So let's go back to Genesis 15. Where we saw that covenant with God made where 
where Abraham did what to those animals? He splits those animals in half and God walks through the middle. Right? And, and basically, this is what God was saying. If, if I break this covenant with Abraham, then let what happened to those animals, let it happen to me. And so here, this, this covenant, you know, where we see Moses, you know, he puts this blood on the altar and then he puts this blood on the, on the people that, that these people seem to be taking part in this covenant with God through blood. And then we see in chapters 25 through 31, this message is given that God spoke to Moses, mainly a plan for the tabernacle to be built where God is saying, okay, they can't come up to me, so I will come down to them and I will live amidst them. My presence will. And for the ministry of the priest, the things that they will have to do. When he was done speaking, God gave Moses the two tablets for the testimony. Ten Commandments. And by Exodus 32, we're going to see Israel as Moses is up on the mountain receiving the tablets that are written by God's hand. They, they hear these, these tablets written by the hand of God. It seems to be that this is part of the covenant, right? That He is, you know, we saw the suzerain treaty that they would have a document signed and it's almost like that God is, is giving His signature. This is what I'm going to do. And then it goes down to the people. And by the, the time that Moses comes down to the people in Exodus 32, that, that they, have, they have made Aaron, made them a golden calf to worship. And this is what God says to Moses. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Moses prays for the people and God withholds His destruction. And so though these people have already broken the covenant, and, and God could have wiped them all out. In fact, there's this you know, strange conversation between him and Moses where Moses is pleading with God not to wipe them all out. Where God seems that He is going to just keep Moses and do away with the rest. But yet, He withholds all of His destruction and only 3,000, only 3,000 the wrath of God is poured out on and, and die after, after this uh, the Israelites have turned against God and broken the, the covenant already. But then we see in Exodus 34, I want you to pay especially close attention to this. God tells Moses to make a new set of stone tablets. See, Moses had gone and interceded in prayer and begged God to come up again in, in uh, chapter 34, 6 and 7. God reveals Himself and the basis of a renewed covenant. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. This is what God said about Himself. So God's about to describe Himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses pleads in verse 9, Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for thine inheritance. And then the Lord responds in verse 10, Behold, I make a new covenant 
I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been wrought in all the earth or in any nation. God shows us so much of his character here. He shows us so much of his forgiveness and his mercy and grace. Is this an earned covenant? We think even in the Ten Commandments, we can see in Exodus 20 verses 5 and 6. The Lord says about himself, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to the thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, those things are intertwined, love me and keep my commandments to be obedient to him. So why are we obedient to him? John Piper puts it this way. And out of this love to God inevitably flows. That means it, it's got to. There's, there's no way that it's not going to do this. It inevitably, inevitably flows in obedience to His Word. So because of love that we have for God, that you're going to have obedience to His Word. Because you always go after what you value. So if we value this God that we serve, then in response to us valuing Him and believing Him, our faith, what it will do, in response will be obedient to Him. So this obedience, listen to what He says, is not earning God's grace. It is not earning God's grace. It is the evidence of love for God's grace. God is not loved when we put ourselves in a position of an employee and Him into the position of an employer who pays us earnings. That is not how this relationship works. He is a father who we have spurned and that he has chosen to. I mean, before the world even came into existence, that the plan goes into motion, that this is what he will do for those people is that he will send his only son to pay for the sins. He is a father that spurned and and thereby he sends a plan to pay with himself. It's an amazing thought. It's an amazing reality. Salvation, it is and always has been by faith, not by works. Again and again in the Old Testament, the rebellion of Israel against the covenant is traced back to this. You know what, what it was at their heart? Unbelief. Every single time, it was unbelief. Look at Numbers 14, 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how, how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. How long will they not believe me? Deuteronomy 1.32 Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. There's many, many more. I won't go through them, but Deuteronomy, you can write them down. Deuteronomy 9.23 2 Kings 17, 14. 2 Chronicles 20, 20. Psalm 78, 22 and 32. Psalm 106, 24. All unbelief. And in Hebrews 3, 19, it says that the reason the wilderness generation, these in, in Exodus, the reason why that they did not enter into the promised land was why? Unbelief. It says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But here, in Galatians 5, 6, Jesus, 
Paul's talking about Jesus Christ. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's the law, right? Circumcision. They were to be circumcised. He says, that counts for nothing but only faith working through love. We're obedient because we love God. It's at the heart. And to have a heart that loves God, your heart has to be transformed. There has to be something that transform your heart. See, Moses is the deliverer of Israel, physical Israel, but Jesus is, is our deliverer, the spiritual deliverer. Moses, he's the mediator of the old covenant, but Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, the mediator between us and God. The promised land, Moses was not allowed to enter, was he? But the greater Moses, Jesus is the greater Moses. You think when, when Moses leaves the helm, who takes over? Joshua. And Joshua's name means that the Lord is salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jesus, Yeshua, it means that, that the Lord is my salvation. Jehovah saves. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. He's the expiator, the mediator, the propitiation for our sins. Jesus went around the, the land during His ministry. He touches the impure. And instead of the impure making Him impure, He touches the impure and He heals them. He touches the impure and He makes them pure. Hebrews 3.3 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And then it says this, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Make no mistake, that is definitely referencing that Jesus is God. For in Colossians, it reminds us that everything was made through Him and for Him. All things. He is the builder of all things. He is the builder of the church. Hebrews 9.12 says this, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer to sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You should keep reading. It says, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, we're, we're guilty under the law, aren't we? For the wages of sin is death. We're guilty. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says in verse 25, Now was it to offer Himself repeatedly, nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of His own. See, the high priest, we're going to have to go in every year. Every year. The, the blood of bulls and goats. And it was going to be ongoing. It was never going to satisfy God. It only pointed to the one true sacrifice. 
That priest wasn't even using his own blood. But then look what it says in verse 26. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has put it away once and for all. Nailed to the cross, went with him to the grave. And when he is raised, never to be raised again. There is no condemnation left for the saints of God. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's coming back. Listen, you need to listen to this and believe it. He, he is coming back a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Are you eagerly waiting for Him? And then I'll leave you with this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We talked about one of the things that that God promised the nation of Israel to do, that He would do with them was to make them uh, priests. And in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we're reminded by Peter that we are now, the spiritual Israel, we are looked at as a royal priesthood. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We can now come before God. Jesus Christ is our mediator right now. A people for His own possession. That we're His possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That it's not based on works. It's not based on uh, circumcision. It's not based on the law. But that He has changed us. That we have to repent. And that our heart has to be made new. And that we go from darkness into marvelous light. And it says in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank God Almighty. Let's pray. God, my Father, I thank You, Lord, for the mercy that You have shown us. And God, I pray, Lord, that You uh, would just constantly remind us, Father, God, that we, um, God, we don't meet the standard. Father, You are the standard. And God, we always fall short if we do not abide in the sacrifice that was put before us, Father. God, that You sent Your Son to be the sacrifice for us, to be the substitution, to be the propitiation that that our sin would be removed from us, Father, because of His sacrifice, Father, that His blood would atone, would make right, God, would expiate our sin from us. God, we love You. We thank You. And it's all in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.